You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church in the Ballston neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us on the web at cumcballston.org to learn more about our congregation, where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Good morning. morning. Philippians verse 4, 4-8. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Lynn, thank you for naming how the Holy Spirit was at work. Last Sunday after church, we had four different tables set up in our fellowship hall for folks to connect with one another and talk about spiritual gifts. It's in those types of conversations where we give the Holy Spirit room to move. And little did Lynn know how the Holy Spirit was going to move this week. Those types of connections are exactly what happened generations ago in the early Methodist class meetings. People would gather, usually 12 men, 12 women. They would meet every week. They would come together to share what God was doing in their life and to find spiritual accountability. If you know what it was like to be an early Methodist, you know that anyone could join. You simply had to desire to flee the wrath to come. But to stay in the group meant that you had to give evidence that you were cooperating with God's grace at work in your life. And this was expected to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Wesley wrote, quote, It is therefore expected of all who continue therein that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation. End quote. Now, he broke this down into the three simple rules that I talked to the children about. To do no harm, to do good, and as he put it, to attend to every ordinance of God. But as Bishop Reuben Job rephrased it in his book, The Three Simple Rules, to do no harm, to do good, and to stay in love with God. These simple rules help us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at doing no harm, and that is an excellent place to start. But as Martin Luther King Jr. said, to do no harm removes danger. 
True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice, end quote. In scripture that we just heard from Paul's letter to the Philippians, he spoke of peace and the connection that comes when we have God's peace. So when we talk about not doing harm, we also must have the other side of the coin, which means to do good. Now, I'm not talking about works righteousness. We cannot earn our way into heaven. We do not need to do good so that God will love us. God already loves us just as we are. Doing good is an opportunity to see God at work in every situation and to respond in a way that cooperates with God's grace. When we do good, it is about cooperating with God, allowing God to work in and through us. If we embrace these three simple rules, it puts us on a journey of transformation to become more than just followers of rules. It enables us to become holy people who have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to conquer every evil that comes our way. In our baptismal and membership vows, we say that we will resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. This happens when Christ's love is at work in everything we do. This morning's scripture lesson describes two components of embracing doing good as a lifestyle. First, it requires humility. In verse 5, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word that we see there in English as gentleness can also be translated from the Greek to say humility. I think this means that we embrace an attitude that doesn't seek to always get our own way. Sometimes people disagree on exactly how to do good. And other times people don't want you to do good to them. It might be a good thing that you want to offer another person, but we have to embrace humility and honor another person's ability to reject our offer of doing good. Second, our desire to do good is to please God, not impress other people. Paul wrote, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We're to dwell on these attributes of God so that we are enabled by God in us to do good, not to impress other people. Paul's letter to the Philippians is by far the most personal of the letters that he wrote to all of the churches that he planted. This letter contains his heartfelt expression for his desire for these people in Philippi to know Christ and experience the best life they possibly can. Paul knew these people in Philippi well, and they knew him too. They were some of the most wealthy and privileged people in all of the Roman Empire. Paul knew this privilege and wealth could be both a blessing and a curse. 
And so with profound love for his friends, Paul challenges them to the highest standard of faithfulness because he knows they have the capacity to transform the world through their goodness. But he didn't want them to compete with one another for status, trying to outdo one another with the good that they could do by wielding their privilege and power. Instead, he wanted them to change the world to please God. He wrote, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Paul wanted his friends to put into practice what they learned from him. Today, we hear his ancient words of instructions and have the opportunity to put them into practice too. If you subscribe to our Arlington District newsletter, then this week you got to read an article written by Gene Cross, and it was on doing good. He emphasized the way that individuals can make a difference in this world by offering their time, the gift of their talents, to do good. In his book, by, uh, Three Simple Rules That Will Change the World by Bishop Reuben Job, he suggests that there is both a reactive way of doing good by responding to the needs that present themselves to us. And there is another way that we can do good. I'm gonna ask you to take out the announcement sheet from your worship guide. It's the little piece of paper folded in half. On the top half, you have the music that we're singing today and all the people who are helping to lead worship. On the bottom half of that front page, there's something that we call a GPS. This is our grow, pray study section every week it contains some nugget of wisdom or questions that came up in the week's sermon research so that you can take it home and dig deeper on your own but right now i want us all to take a moment and to look at that section from the book that he wrote about this second type of doing good and as you're able and comfortable I want you to read with me. It's a long passage, but I think we can do it together. So take just a moment to get ready, and we'll read what Bishop Job wrote about doing good. And with one voice we say, doing good like doing no harm is a proactive way of living. I do not need to wait to be asked to do some good deed or provide some needed help. I do not need to wait until circumstances cry out for aid to relieve suffering or correct some horrible injustice. I can decide that my way of living will come down on the side of doing good to all in every circumstance and in every way I can. I can decide that I will choose a way of living that nourishes goodness and strengthens community. Think about this proactive way of living. I can decide that I will choose a way of living that nourishes goodness and strengthens community. Well, that certainly sounds like doing good is much more significant than just trying to be nice to other people. 
what are some of the proactive ways of living that you embrace or you want to embrace in your life as a way of doing good? That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Volunteer. That's right. We volunteer. We offer our time. Chris. Being involved in local organizations to change your area for good. Any other proactive ways? Well, here every Friday morning, we feed the hungry. If you're not part of that, you're welcome anytime from 5.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. We partner with organizations like ASPAN who help provide shelter for those in need. We also think about the people in our community and what their needs are. Every August we collect school supplies to offer to kids who may not have access to the supplies they need to learn. There are a lot of ways that we can be proactive. Now one of the things that Gene named in his newsletter that you might not have thought of as a way of doing good, and it's a proactive way of doing good, is by intentionally expressing gratitude, by saying thanks. You might not think that saying thanks would be a radical way of doing good, but it was for at least one person. Author and leadership coach Tim Sanders tells this story about a young manager named Steve. After listening to one of Sanders' um, interviews on the radio, Steve was inspired to lead his team at work in a different way. He resolved to visit with each of his employees, all six of whom he had not seen face to face in the last six months, even though they worked in the same building and on the same floor. Steve wanted to tell each employee how much he appreciated them and name one specific task that they did very well. After the visit from Steve, one of the software engineers named Lenny came into work and gave Steve a present. Lenny handed him an Xbox gaming system. Steve was taken aback. He knew that Lenny didn't make a lot of money, and he couldn't believe that Lenny would want to give him this brand new gaming system. Lenny explained that his mother had died the previous year, and he had become extremely depressed. Lenny said, I started a routine every night after work, eating a bowl of ramen noodles, listening to Nirvana, and getting out a gun. This lasted for months. But for the last few weeks, I was getting closer and closer to using that gun. Then you came into my cubicle, and you told me you appreciated me because I turn in all of my projects early, and that helps you sleep at night. You also said that I have a great sense of humor and that you're glad I came into your life. That night I went home, ate ramen, and listened to Nirvana. When I got out the gun, it scared me silly for the first time. All I could think about was what you had said to me, that you were glad I came into your life. The next day I went to the pawn shop and I sold that gun. And I remembered that you mentioned you wanted an Xbox. So I took the money and got that for you. So for my life, 
you get this game. Thanks, boss. We may never know the impact of our choice to do good. It is rare that it would happen as dramatically and in such a short time as it did with Steve and, Le and Lenny. It might take generations for the full impact of our choice to do good to be felt. Author Andy Andrews wrote a book entitled The Butterfly Effect. And in that book, he shares this story. On Friday, April 2nd, 2004, ABC News honored a man who at that time was 91 years old. The news program was running a regular segment called Person of the Week. Usually the honoree's accomplishments are listed in advance and by the time the name is announced, most folks have already guessed the identity of that week's recipient. But this week, the pronouncement left many viewers puzzled. And so our Person of the Week is Norman Borlaug. One can only imagine the confusion. Who? Norman, what was his last name? Yet despite the unfamiliarity of most people, Norman Burlog is a man who is personally responsible for drastically and dramatically changing the world in which we live. You see, in the early 1940s, Norman Burlog hybridized high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat for arid climates. From the Dust Bowl of Western Africa to our own desert southwest, from Central and South America to the plains of Siberia, across Europe and Asia, Borlaug's specific seed product flourished and regenerated where no seed had ever thrived before. Through the years, it has now been calculated that Norman Burlaug's work saved more than two billion lives from famine. You know, actually, the credit might not go to Norman Burlog. It might need to go to Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was the Vice President of the United States under Franklin Roosevelt. Over his four terms, Roosevelt had three different Vice Presidents, and the second man to serve in this position was Henry Wallace. He was the former Secretary of Agriculture, who, after one term as Vice President, was dumped from the ticket in favor of Truman. While Wallace was vice president, however, he used the power of that office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. And there, he hired a young man named Norman Burlog. So, Norman Burlog got the attention. But when you think about it, maybe it was really Henry Wallace who should have gotten the credit. Or maybe it should have been George Washington Carver you remember him, right? The peanut. But you may not know that when Carver was 19 years old and a student at Iowa State University, he had a dairy sciences professor who on Saturday and Sunday afternoons would allow his six-year-old son to go on botanical expeditions with his graduate students. It was George Washington Carver who took that young boy out into the field and instilled in him a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. It was George Washington Carver who pointed six-year-old Henry Wallace's life in a very specific direction long before he ever became Vice President of the United States. It's amazing to contemplate, isn't it, 
George Washington Carver, flapping his butterfly wings so many generations ago, impacting that six-year-old boy who just happened to be in a position to hire the right person who then could save the lives of two billion people. So should it have been George Washington Carver as person of the week? Or maybe it should have been a farmer named Moses from Diamond, Missouri. He had lived in a slave state, but he did not believe in slavery. This made him a target. And one day raiders came through his farm and they burned and killed almost everything. The outlaws burned the barn, shot several people, and dragged off a woman named Mary Washington, who refused to let go of her infant son, George. Now, Mary Washington was a friend of Moses' wife, Susan. And though she was distraught, Susan promptly set to work writing messages and contacting nearby farms. She got word out that they wanted to rescue her friend, Mary Washington, and her son, George. When they found the location of the bandits, Susan anxiously asked her husband to ride off on their one last living horse. He went and he found those raiders, and he traded what little he had left for what was then just a small, dirty burlap bag. And in that bag was an infant an infant that he and his wife adopted. And so that is how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise their adopted son, George Washington. So when you think about it, maybe it was that farmer from Diamond, Missouri, who saved two billion people. Or was it his wife, Susan, who was responsible because she organized the effort and demanded immediate action, unless is there an ending to that story? Exactly who is it that saved those two billion lives? Is there a specific person that we could point to? How many lives would we have to examine in order to determine who really gets the credit? How far back would we have to go to see acts of good that impacted generation after generation until it came to fruition? In our own lives, how far back would we need to go to see the benefits that we have of previous generations who have done good? And how far forward would we need to go in our lives to see the difference that we make when we choose to do good today? There are generations of people yet to be born whose lives will be shifted and shaped by the choices we make today. When we choose to do good, we may see an immediate impact or we may see it in generations to come. It is our choice to cooperate with God at work. When we choose to do good, it's not just on our own human power. Instead, every Christian has the full access to the power of God to make doing good our way of life. We live this way not from our own strength, but from the strength of God. If we relied only on ourselves, we would burn out. We would experience compassion fatigue. 
but instead we combine doing good with staying in love with God. And that is what changes the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.